0: You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel.
1: Tonight's reading is from the book of John, chapter 12, verses 20 through 50. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now, is my soul troubled? And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice from heaven came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe, for again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for the fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so they would not be put out of synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God." The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment. What I say and what I speak, and I know that this commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Father, we are thankful for your word. We pray that
0: you would show us your glory Lord Jesus, we pray that we would see you and love you. Spirit, by your word, lift our eyes to Jesus, we pray. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Maybe may be seated. Uh, tonight is a torch evening, so if you're a fourth through sixth grader and you want to go talk about this text that we just heard with Gail and Patrick, y'all can head on out and then we'll see you back right at the end of the sermon. I'm not quite sure what has happened in the past 10 or 12 years, but as we all know, superhero movies are everywhere. Like in last year alone, I count nine major superhero blockbusters, if you include the Lego Batman movie, which you ought. Uh, And we're only four months into 2018, and we are Now, three big ones already, right? Uh, I haven't seen the new Avengers yet, so no spoilers, please. Uh, And the new Incredibles 2 is coming out this summer. Can't wait. But bad news is there's a new Ant-Man, and wait for it, an Aquaman, the worst, that's coming out this summer. Uh, I know many of you, perhaps most of you, have superhero fatigue, but it's a story that we, as Americans, have always told uh, Superman first came out in 1933 and then we've got like Paul Bunyan as Americans and even like apocryphal tellings of George Washington but it's a story that all humans tell from like Beowulf and Odysseus and Hercules we humans we look around and we see this world that is broken beyond repair that nothing that we there's nothing that we can do as humans to fix it and we intuitively know and long for someone outside of this world someone unlike us to come and fix it now, don't worry, I'm not about to go through, like, all the redemptive themes and perhaps force-fit all the Christ figures that come from an Infinity War or something. Uh, but in our text tonight, Jesus straight up says that he has come to save the world. He's come to save it. So we'll see, though, that Jesus, he's a king and a hero that is completely different than the kind of king and he- hero that Israel and we have expected. And perhaps, if we're honest with ourselves, the kind of king and hero that we actually want— So we'll move through our text tonight in two halves. An unexpected kingdom and then an unexpected king. So an unexpected kingdom. So the world and the nations actually set off this entire text. Right off the top in verse 20 we read, Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. Unlike the other gospel writers, Gentiles have played almost a non-existent role in John's gospel. In fact, I could be wrong here, but in my cursory rereading of the first 11 and a half chapters of John, other than the Samaritans that appear in chapter 4, these Greeks here in chapter 12 are the first non-Jews in this entire book. And their appearance, it appears, is like a match on the fuse. When Andrew and Philip come and tell Jesus that there are some Greeks who want to see him. In verse 23, he says, all right, there it is. There it is. The fuse is lit. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And why? Well, because throughout the entirety of the Bible, the movement of God has always been about people from all nations coming to worship him. In the Old Covenant, Israel was meant to be the nozzle on the hose, the thing through which The blessings of God went to water and green the entire world from its drought and its death. But the intention was never oriented toward or never was meant to finalize in the people of Israel. God is the creator of all humanity, and he desires to be the God of all humanity, not just the people who happened to be genetically related to Abraham. So we'll see, we saw this in Genesis 12 when God first calls Abraham and tells him that through him all of the nations of the world would be blessed. If you've been staying with our reading plan, you saw a week or so ago in Isaiah 19 a really crazy passage, but it was amazing, where God tells Isaiah that there's a day coming where he will call Assyria and Egypt his people, right alongside his people Israel. And if you've been Reading in this, this weekend, seeing at the end of Isaiah where people from all nations come and bring tribute to God as king, we know that there's a day coming where God's saving power and his grace will explode out of Israel into the nations. So when Jesus hears that they're here, here we go. Here is the hour. He's overcome with emotion. On the one hand, yes, this is the hour. This is the hour that the Son of Man will be glorified. And as we remember from John 5, the Son of Man is referenced to Daniel 7. Let's reread that. You don't have to flip over there. Let me reread there to remind you what happens when the Son of Man appears and is glorified. Daniel sees a vision And he says, Behold, when the clouds of heaven, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. He sees the Lord Jesus, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. That sounds awesome, right? Like the hour for all of that is finally here. The Greeks have come. The nations have come. But what is the hour that John has been referencing over and over and over thus far in this gospel? Jesus' hour had not yet come. His hour had not yet come. His hour had not yet come. The hour of his glorification, but the hour of his death. So Jesus gives an incredible word picture in verse 24. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. As 21st century urban Americans, we're not as familiar with wheat. I think I don't know much about wheat. Uh, So think about like an acorn on an oak tree. If If the acorn only lives for itself, and it like selfishly holds on to the tree, a very selfish acorn, then it will remain alone. It's a a life of isolation, isolated, in fact, from the very purpose which it exists for. But if and when the acorn detaches from the tree, like it was meant to, the very reason the tree gave birth to this acorn in the first place— if it fulfills its purpose when it experiences a death a separation from the tree a cut-offness from the tree then then and only then can it produce life and not just more life for itself growing into a huge oak tree itself but literally countless more life explodes from it, grows from it. Not only the acorns that will come from its tree, but then the exponential amount of trees that grow from the acorns from that tree, and the acorns from that tree, and the acorn from that tree. Just because this one acorn detaches itself from the first tree. And Jesus is saying that this is what's coming for him. He must experience his death. He must experience his being detached from the life of God, his being cut off and separated so that he can be glorified in his resurrection, in his resurrection life, then given to those who are united to him by faith. This is exactly what Caiaphas unknowingly prophesied at the end of chapter 11. It's better for one man to die for the people than the whole nation perish, he said. Better for one acorn to die than all the plants of the world to die. And it's exactly what we've seen Jesus saying throughout the book. He is the good shepherd who lays his life down for his sheep. No one takes his life from him. He lays it down for his sheep because of his great love for them. John Stott says something that I want you to listen to very closely. And I want you to hear this and I want you to let it like get down into the deepest cracks and crevices of your heart and soul. He says, God does not love us because Christ died for us. Christ died for us because God loves us. His death for our life... His love for our life. For as I shared with you a month or so ago, our forgiveness is not some legal technicality buried in the heavenly documents obligating a reluctant God. It is the present wish and joy of an affectionate father, the present interest of an interceding Christ, and the present ministry of the indwelling spirit. Incredible. The love of God through the life and love of Christ for his sheep. But being united with Jesus isn't just sharing in his life, in his resurrection. Being a Christian means union with his death as well. Jesus goes on in verse 25, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now, this isn't the only place in the Gospels that Jesus uses this kind of really, really strong hate language. Can Can you think of at least two others in the Gospels? Luke 14, Jesus says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, he cannot be my disciple. Or Matthew 6. He says, "No one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money." What Jesus is not saying that to follow him, you have to hate your life in the way that we typically say, "Man I, I hate my life man," or like like, I'm constantly miserable. To to love Jesus and follow him, I have to constantly be distressed and then just brood around as I wait for heaven or something. Or that you have to, even as an adult, he said you have to hate your father and mother. So, like, you have to, like, every time you see your parents like you did when you were 15, be like, I hate you! Or, that's not what he's saying, and you 15-year-olds, this is not what Jesus is commanding you to do. He's Actually, it says other places to honor your father and mother. Or for you to, like, get out a $5 bill or a credit card and say, I hate you, money. Like, I hate you. I hate you because I love Jesus. Like, this is not what he's actually telling us to do. All of these things are good gifts from God. So what Jesus is confronting is not that we need to hate these things in the way that we typically think, but he's confronting our ultimate allegiance, our highest devotion Compared to Jesus, our allegiance to our possessions, to our money, even to our family, ought to be nothing. They shouldn't even be close or nearby rivals. Considerably lower, our love and devotion for our family, our love and devotion for money even our love and devotion for our own life compared to our allegiance to Christ, these other loves actually look like disdain compared to our overwhelming love and loyalty to Christ. And so what Jesus is saying here in John 12 is our own lives, our hopes, our dreams, our desires, all of these things that are not about following Jesus, that are not about his kingdom over ours, these come to the cross to die to die, to follow him. Now, if Jesus is just about promoting himself, all this sounds kind of like the height of arrogance, right? But remember that Jesus isn't a politician. He's not just making promises to get our vote, to get us to sign up, to commit to his cause, because we're convinced that it's going to make, following him is going to make our lives easier, more comfortable. Instead, Jesus acts as the skilled mountain guide, promising to lead his sheep home even when the road that he's leading us on looks threatening and dangerous. The loving, good shepherd, he knows that our higher allegiance, the allegiance that we're tempted toward, of our family, of our money, of our possessions, of our own lives, these are lives that will ultimately lead to death. So trust me, he says, kill your allegiance to those things and follow me no matter the cost. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. This is not the unreasonable demand of an egocentric deity. This is the invitation of our loving creator and our good shepherd to follow him into life. But if all of this is unexpected, the kingdom of life through death, it's because— The kingdom's king is unexpected as well. So, secondly, an unexpected king. So, follow the movement again. The the Greeks have arrived, which triggers in Jesus' mind that the hour has come. But because that hour means the hour of the cross, the hour of not just his death, but his shouldering of the wrath and the judgment of God against the trillions of sins of the millions of his sheep, now in verse 27, he's deeply troubled. He's troubled. What shall I pray for then, he asks God? That you should save me or spare me from this fate? And he begins to reason, no. No, this is the entire reason that I've come. Remember, God does not love us because Christ died for us, but Christ died for us because God loves us. This is the very reason that he has come, to experience the hour of his death, But his love for us is also so inextricably bound up in the glory of the Father, even though he is concerned about his coming cross, he is more deeply moved by the concern that has consumed his entire life up into this moment. Father, he seems, I I think, I'm just guessing here, but it feels like he's like yelling to the heavens. Father, glorify your name. To which then didn't see this one coming, the Father actually answers from heaven. Audibly. The voice of God says, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Presumably meaning that God the Father has glorified his name throughout the life, throughout the teaching and the ministry of God the Son, and he will certainly glorify it again at Jesus's coming death and resurrection. But no one apart from Jesus understands the voice. Most think it was just thunder, though some think it was an angel that was speaking to Jesus. So why in the world would Jesus say in verse 30 that the voice has come for your sake, not mine, if nobody understands it? Well, even if the folks there that day didn't understand what was going on, you think it ought to be a pretty validating moment if Jesus says, Father, glorify your name, and then immediately following like the entire skies roll with thunder. But even more than that, remember that it's John who's writing this. Either Jesus later told John what the thunder really was and what the Father said so that he could write it down for us. Or the disciples had some later revelation and clarity as they often did. Things they remembered or understood in a new way after Jesus' resurrection and ascension. So in that sense, John's present readers, 30 or 50 years after this moment, after the coming crucifixion, they need to hear heaven's pronouncement and validation of Jesus, especially since he said that he's about to be lifted up. John gives us the little side note in verse 33. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. We've seen him talk a lot about being lifted up, but we've seen that that means his coming cross is lifted up in his death. So all of this is an after-the-fact explainer and validation to a first-century Jew or to some Mediterranean person in the day. Like they hear of this gospel, they hear of this Jesus, and they're like, wait, you are actually and seriously wanting me to believe that Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of Man. I've heard of this guy. He died on a Roman cross, which is like the most shameful way that you could die. Naked, alone. And to a first century Jew, to any Jew of the day, being hung up on a cross means that certainly he's not the son of God because he's cursed by God. He's experiencing the curse of God. Certainly not sent by him or validated by him. But John is saying before we even get to the crucifixion in seven more chapters that all of this is where all of this has been heading. This has been the eternal plan of the triune God since eternity past. Like, I know, I know he's, he's a king that no one was expecting. And his kingdom is showing its way, it sh- itself in a way that no one has expected. But remember what John will write later at the end of chapter 20. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing you may have life in his name. All of this has happened and I've chosen to write all the things that I've written so that you may believe, John says. Even his coming shameful death. But the crowd in the scene, they still don't get it. They, they gather that Jesus is hinting at his being lifted up, meaning his death. Because they say in verse 34, we've, we've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who, who is this Son of Man? Throughout the Psalms, throughout the prophets, God promises that the kingdom of David will have no end We've already seen the Son of Man in Daniel 7. He'll be given dominion and authority over a kingdom which will not pass away, will never be destroyed. So they don't get it. They don't understand. What are you talking about? I guess you can't be the Son of Man because you're talking about dying. And the Son of Man has not come to die. To which Jesus, he never really answers his quest- their questions, does he? Who who is the son of man, they say, and Jesus says in verse 35, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. Light and darkness has been perhaps the predominant theme thus far in John's gospel, and Jesus is saying, look. Look. Everything that I'm saying should be clear to you. All of it, it should be clear to you if you're following me. Because you're in the darkness, though, you can't see. Like the Pharisees in chapter 9, you're all blind men. Even the blind see better than you do. But the light is here. Don't remain in your dank little corner of your dark little cave. Like Lazarus, stand up and walk out of the darkness and into the light. I have created the light. I've spoken it into existence and I have created you. Come to me. Follow me. Like the skilled mountain guide with the headlamp. I am the way to see. I have the light. So that you may become sons of the light. Sharing the DNA and the characteristics of the light. Not darkness. Transformed from thinking about only your own promotion and recognition. A life of selfishness and sin. But a life of light, a light of fullness, even when it feels like death. Unfortunately, though, no one understands. Everyone here chooses to stay in the darkness, in blindness, in sin, and in, in rebellion against their Creator. And so, in a foreshadow of what he was just describing, of what's to come, of the light being removed, in the second part of verse 36, he departed and he hid himself from them. And John tells us that despite all that he had done and showed them, the people, they they still don't believe. Then in anticipating the same questions that Paul anticipates in Romans 9, John seemingly seems to understand that a common objection is likely going to be if Jesus was so great, if his teaching was as clear as you're saying that it was, if his miracles were as powerful as you're describing them to be, then why in the world would these people who are with him, who are hearing him and seeing him, why would they not follow him? Why would they not follow his every move and worship him as their God? So John answers his anticipated objector with this in verse 37. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe for again Isaiah said he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them This is admittedly a very difficult text both in the context of Isaiah and in John's usage of it But what Isaiah is describing is what many theologians call a judicial hardening God acting as judge in in a sentencing He is hardening their hearts. This is what, this is what's what's being described here is not a world filled with morally neutral humans, or even more, a world filled with morally exemplary or morally pure humans who are out here just trying their best. We're out here trying their best, trying to know God, and are pretty open to His glory being made known in their lives. Like they want to love and they want to trust Him. No, this is a world of darkness. It's filled with a human race who, from our very beginning, stands in opposition to God, wanting nothing to do with him, hating even the idea of any kind of accountability from him, far from neutral and even farther from pure. But God, out of this world of opposition, God sets his redeeming love, his redeeming grace on some, on many, But on yet others, he hardens. He gives them over to their desire to live apart from him. None of this is set over and against human responsibility. In verse 37, the crowd still will not believe even though they see the signs. Verse 43 tells us that while some of the leaders believed in him, they nevertheless love the glory that comes from man more than they love the glory that comes from God. Perhaps it's on texts like these that C.S. Lewis reflects that there are only two kinds of people. Only two those who say to God, thy will be done, or those to whom God says, thy will be done. I mentioned before that when we've gotten into some deep end theology like this, if you've got questions about any of this, if if what Isaiah has said, if what John has said, if what Jesus has said has just triggered some questions that you didn't even know that you had, uh, we really love to talk to you about this, either after the service or perhaps even better over coffee this week or the next. But here's the point of where all of this is going. Verse 44, and Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light So that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I do not come to judge the world, but to save the world. While some hear his voice and are then further hardened, Jesus doesn't come into the world, which is opposed to him, to condemn its opposition, but to save countless out from its opposition, Like the superhero that we all long for, the one who can do what we can't, he comes to rescue. If you've been coming around here lately and hearing this gospel call to repentance, this call to abandon the life on your own that you think is the way to life, but in seeing Jesus more clearly, you're beginning to perhaps understand, perhaps even question a bit that this life that you thought you wanted. Is it really the way of life? It looks now a bit more like it might be the way to death. If that's true, come to him tonight. Come now. Now. Let, let tonight be the night of repentance, of turning, of confession. Pray to the Lord to forgive you of your sin, to forgive you of a life of worship of yourself, worship of other things. Confess the many dark places of your heart. And here's the good news. He is faithful and just to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Incredible. What riches of kindness he lavished on us. His blood was the payment. His life was the cost. We stood neath a debt we could never afford. Our sins, they are many. But his mercy is more. What we sang earlier, that, that, that's like the most ground-shaking truth in all of eternity that our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. Tonight, no more delaying. No more putting off what to do with Jesus. You're delaying your, your lack of confession tonight is actually a procrastinating rejection of Jesus. Please, we, we would love to pray with you tonight. We'd love to pray for you tonight. Thinking through what it might mean to follow him and for your life to die so that you might experience life for eternity. But here's the thing. Jesus has not just come for the Jews. Jesus has not just come for Americans. He has come to save sheep from every tribe and every nation from the world. Remember what lit the fuse. It's the Greeks. Or it's the Greeks that come... He knows that his hour is here. Remember that the Son of Man, which he references, that all peoples, all nations, and all languages come to worship him. In verse 32, he says, And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. We know that he can't mean every person, every human, because he's right in the middle of speaking of judgment, of hardening, but he's talking about all peoples. He's come to draw all peoples to himself. So in the Lord's providence, he's given us this wonderful text here in the second half of John chapter 12 on the day that our brothers from these wonderful ministries, these mission agencies, they've been with us. So as we've talked a lot lately about our friends and neighbors who need to hear the gospel and need to believe, today's a day that I'm so excited to think more in a a more focused way on entire people groups who remain in darkness, who remain in blindness, how will they believe if no one tells them? And how will someone tell them if no one sends them? Praise God for our dear brothers and sisters, our partners, our families, who have considered Jesus to be better than their own families. Their, the grandparents and cousins that they left behind, how thankful for what we are that they considered their money and possessions to be something that wasn't even a close rival to their loyalty to Jesus. The comfortable American lives that they had been taught for their entire lives, this would be the most satisfying thing for them, they rejected. Christ Church, please do not forget to often, regularly, and earnestly pray for our families in North Africa. There ought to be none of us, not one Christian who is indifferent to missions. We either go or we send None of us, or not all of us, will move overseas, but every single one of us ought to be committed prayers. We ought to be regular, disciplined, and generous financial givers. About 24% of our relatively small annual budget here at Christchurch goes towards mission. The overwhelming majority of that towards international missions to the light of Christ going to where entire people groups stand blind and dead in their sins. But we won't be able to keep that up at the proportion that we're going at right now unless we all, as a church, continue to commit to generously give, to commit to sending well. So just a heads up, we're, we're approaching the end of our third, or our second fiscal year. We're moving into uh, our pro- Preparations for our third annual budget. And here's the thing. We're going to need to adjust our budget in August to reflect the internal giving that's been happening in our church. Meaning as we prepare to come off of external financial giving. You see every week on the giving report there at the end, there's a little asterisk. We've been receiving funds for two years and we'll receive a little bit uh, more in year three. But much of that is dropping off after two years. As we prepare to come off of external financial giving, unless our internal giving increases, we're going to need to make some cuts come August to reflect what we're actually giving together as a church, which includes international missions and church planting. So, commit to sending. Commit to generous giving for the sake of the nations. And this isn't just a, hey, let's open up our wallets pep talk. This is a, just as we have heard and we have followed the call of the skilled mountain guide. We want people from every tribe and tongue and nation to follow him as well. Dirty sheep right along. Uh, we dirty sheep just following the good shepherd. So one of the surest ways to grow in our our love for the nations is to read stories of people in their love for the nations. As you walk out of here, take a look on the backside of the mobile bookshelf up there by the coffee table. We've got tons of amazing biographies of missionaries throughout history. A lot of those are written for smaller and elementary age kids, but I tell you what, they'd be good for you to read by yourself or to read to your kids. We've been so blessed and encouraged by reading some of these to our kids. So I know a lot of the torch kids who are would be checking those things out, aren't in here now. So parents, tell them about these biographies. Parents, or you without kids, go check one of these out tonight. There's a ton of them. There's enough for every household, uh, I think. Uh, We might have a backside empty of that mobile bookshelf tonight, but that's a good thing. Take one of those. Read. Find ways to encourage yourself in your love for the nations. Christopher, Valdez, Jacob Covell, somewhere around here. They're leaving tomorrow for North Africa, for three weeks. They're going to hang out with our families in North Africa and the physical therapy clinic there to perhaps consider what uh, a life, a a longer-term life might look like there. Would you commit to starting to pray for them tonight for the next three weeks? Yes? And I kind of just blew by the idea that not all of us are goers. But I imagine, it's like, Clint prayed earlier that perhaps some of us are. Would you consider perhaps for the first time to begin praying about whether you would leave America behind for the sake of God's glory, for the sake of the nations, for the sake of the light of Christ coming into places of darkness, of blindness that dead people might hear the voice of Jesus and come to him in resurrection life. Would you consider this, that you might like our families in North Africa, and like we all sang earlier, that you might let goods and kindred go, perhaps even this mortal life also. His kingdom, not our kingdom, but his kingdom is forever. So perhaps, as you've seen in the weekly email, the Campbells could really use a single gal or two for about nine months to help them homeschool their children help their family. Would you consider this? Like, oh, I'm sure somebody will take care of that. But no, maybe I should take care of that. Maybe I should get on a plane and and go to North Africa for nine months. Would you consider perhaps what it might look like to take your entire family or consider what a career for the rest of your life overseas might look like? Would you consider like the Gojers to begin to prepare to pray towards moving, towards leaving America behind for the sake of the kingdom of Christ, not the kingdom of my nice suburban life here in America. Perhaps as you go out to dinner tonight, tell someone, I think God might be stirring something in me tonight. I'm not sure what it is, and frankly, it's very scary. I have no idea what this means, and it may mean that I stay in my suburban life. There's plenty good that, that many of us stay in our suburban life and make good money to send. Let's, we need people to do that. We're not all going to get on a plane and go. But perhaps tell someone, I think something might be happening. It may end in me staying here for the rest of my life and just continue to be a committed, generous sender. But would you join with me in starting to pray about what this actually might look like? And might we all begin to pray about being better senders if that's what God has for us? Until Christ returns, let's never relax in our efforts to be a sending and going church, Christ Church, to be a conduit of God's blessing and never a cul de sac. Let me close this with John Piper's famous opening paragraph to his wonderful book, Let the Nations Be Glad. He writes, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. Praise the Lord. It's a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit abide forever. And I can't wait to spend eternity with you, worshiping the triune God reveling in his great love and his redemptive mercy of his people. Might others know that through us? Let me pray for us. Father, we are thankful that you have saved us. We pray for those here tonight who are unsure of their salvation, are unsure of what it looks like to trust you, that by your grace alone that you save they're not quite sure if they're trusting in Christ alone. Father, we pray that you might open eyes and give sight, that you might bring light to darkness and you might bring life to death, we pray, even tonight. Father, having tasted this gospel, having, having understood its sweetness, help us, we pray, to be committed sinners generous givers, committed and regular and earnest prayers. And Father, we pray for those here tonight who might be sensing something stirring, perhaps for the first time in their life, perhaps something that they've felt for a while but have been trying to ignore or suppress. Father, we pray that you might send well out of this church. And we pray that the light of Christ might come from your people all over the globe and to the farthest reaches of the globe to every tribe and every tongue and every nation for your sake that the Lord Jesus might be high and lifted up, receiving a kingdom of power and dominion which will never end. Lord, may your kingdom come, we pray, on earth as it is in heaven. In Christ's name, amen. hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.ChristChurchABQ.com